Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Anyway, uh, good morning. I am uh, Robert Kelly, and uh, before I get started, I wanted to, some of you know my wife's uh, molasses sugar cookies, and uh, she was baking uh, just a ton of them yesterday, and so if you know, you know. These are like the best, and so come on up and grab some, some cookies. Come on, Scott. I got, come on. I got anyone who wants to. I got a whole basket full of uh, these cookies, and if you know them, you know them. You look at it. You get a six-pack, buddy. This is like absolutely. Now, some people would say maybe you're just currying favor. You get the whole five-pack there with the crowd, and it's possible that I might, I might be just trying to curry favor with uh, the crowd here. You get two, and, um, and you get one, and I ran out of napkin, so you get fingers, and there you go. You're going to get the one, and, uh, and then I got, a, I got a crumb, and that's it. I'm sorry. That's all you get. I'm out. Maybe you could bum one off of someone you know, who already, you know, had six. You could split them, maybe. But, um, you know, tough luck on those of you who didn't get them. That's just the way it is. That is the way the cookie crumbles. In fact, that's sort of how we really understand the world to operate, right? I mean, there's simply simply not enough resources to go around, And when they are being doled out, they're not being doled out in any sort of rational or equitable way, right? So for Cheryl and I, we have a a Christmas tradition. It actually starts a couple of months before Christmas. It's the Christmas spreadsheet. I don't know if any of you have a Christmas spreadsheet. I'm sure there are parents here who do. Because uh, you know what happens. A few months before Christmas, you set a budget. And so let's say you're going to do $500 for all of your Christmas gifts for your family. And, and then you break it up. And so in our case, we have three boys. And so we have to put their names down. And then we have to start listing all of the gifts that we're, we're getting for them. The Christmas spreadsheet, right? And, and, and then you have to add the value of the gifts, and, and you have to add the value of the gifts, and you got to think about the number of the gifts. And it's actually a fairly complex algorithm that we have to apply, because some gifts are just cooler and bigger and flashier, uh, even if they're not as expensive. And so you could get one really cool flashy gift, you could spend more on 10 gifts for the other kid, and it still wouldn't feel right. So you got to weigh all of these different things. It takes the wisdom of Solomon to do it. Does anyone have, am I the only one? Because it's going to be embarrassing if I'm the only one who does the Christmas spreadsheet uh, ceremony. And and so we do this because, of course, why? Why? Because we want our kids to love us and take care of us when we're old. That's why, right? Because we know they're going to be like, oh, man, that wasn't right. That was fair. They had the favorite over there. I'm not the favorite. Look, they got all of these things. Even if it is the exact number of gifts and the exact number, that's the goal, though. The exact value and the exact number. We open gifts one at a time. 
So if somebody ends up with like four or five or six extra gifts at the end, they just got to sit there and keep opening them up in, in all of their wanton just joy of watching the and the rest of us like, wah, wah, no more gifts for us and so on, you know? But you would think about this because we're like, listen, there's limited resources and we're not trying to be stingy, but it's hard not to be just a little bit stingy and we don't want them to be disappointed and yet sometimes they are still disappointed. You think about it from your boss's perspective. Your boss is doling out bonuses and your coworker, who you think is doing pretty much the same work that you're doing, maybe not quite as good, they get the 10-day Mediterranean cruise. And you're like, that's fantastic. They're giving out cruises this year. And you get a ceramic chicken. And you're like, this is horrible. At the very least, they should have split that cruise in two and given me five and them five days and because that at least would have been right and fair. And we all know I do more of the work anyway. It should have been six and four or seven and three. Because, but if, now there's limited resources. But you know, the boss is being stingy anyway. It makes perfect sense that we then come to our relationship with God and we operate in many of these same principles. We would never say it like this. We're too, we're too sharp for that, especially if you've kicked around Christian circles for a while, but, but often very deep in our hearts, we kind of wonder why God's blessings don't flow a little more aggressively, frequently than they are right now. We wonder why God's gifts aren't dropping with a little more regularity on those who need or want them, especially when we've been particularly good. Why is, why is it that I'm still struggling? Why is it that I'm still suffering? Why is it that I'm still battling my addictions? Why is it that God hasn't shown up? Why is it that my relationships are fraying all around me? Why is it that my health continues to deteriorate? How come my retirement funds and security just keep dropping as that market drops? What is that gonna mean for my future I need God to show up and dole out some molasses sugar cookies. Give me a few more than maybe he has been giving. At the very beginning of the ministry year, we said that we were gonna focus this year on creating a spiritual oasis for our souls. And, and one of the first things we did is we kicked off with a series called Soundtracks. And we, we looked at all of the untrue, unhelpful, and unkind things that we believe and, and these things clutter up our minds. All of these lies clutter up. And so we spent weeks exploring these, these soundtracks. And we talked about how to rebuild them and, and how to, and many of us are still applying some of the practices that we learned during that series to sort of help bring our minds and therefore our souls into some sort of rest. And then we have the, the reading plan. And if you're participating in the reading plan, then you know that we've been looking at the promises of God because we want these promises to just wash over you and just let, let you, you just ruminate in, in what God has promised to us in his word. And now we're in this series that we call Wait For It, where we looking, we're looking at, at one chapter of the Bible, Romans 8, and we're seeing that God is pulling back the veil and we're starting to get a peek behind what all that God has been doing. And, and, and throughout the book of Romans and in Romans 8, we've been just learning so much about the goodness of God. We see that God, we get challenged 
by the power of the Spirit when we're flirting with sin. And we see that he provides this inexhaustible comfort when we're beaten down. And even if we're beaten down from our own rebellious and weak ways, we, we find comfort from God even in that. We saw that he promised us no condemnation for those who are followers of Jesus. We were promised that we were moving from death to life, that we could now genuinely delight in God's ways. We saw that because of the presence of the Spirit, we can now be empowered to follow in ways that are increasingly marked by his goodness and holiness. We, we learned that we can put a smile on God's face. So you, a creature, can put a smile on the creator of the universe's face. Wow. This is crazy. This is such beautiful stuff. We even saw that there's something hopeful in suffering. This was a few weeks ago. We had a picture frame, and we showed how, how depending on what you're looking at, it, you might not get the whole of the picture. And we also talked about what the mortification of sin, and it's a big theological term, but it was an opportunity and a privilege that every one of us has to battle against our most sinful tendencies and to struggle toward holiness in Jesus. We had the corks, and we, we examined what that life looks like and, and how the Spirit can enable us to greater depths of joy because of it. And so, so what shall we say in response to these things? That's, that's, what, that's not me, that's just Paul. Paul actually says this now. He's, he's listing all of these things in Romans, chapters one through eight, especially in eight, and he says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? What shall we say? And then he's gonna tell us. He's going to wrap, he's starting to wrap things up for us. What shall we say? If God is for us. Now, before we, we press in deeper on some of these incredible promises, we got to just spend a few minutes with, with this idea, if. If God is for us. Because if reminds us of a terrible truth. And so we're going to have to go through some, some valleys before we get to some mountaintops here this morning. And we've said this in a number of different ways in this series, but it bears repeating because if we miss this great reality, we will underappreciate what God's promises really are all about. You see, the Bible makes it clear that he loves each and every one of his creatures. He loves every single creature and he desires every single person to follow him through repentance and through Jesus. That's what he wants. He's, he, he, he wants each and every one of us to do this. But the Bible also makes it clear that everyone who, who refuses to do this has chosen the wrong side. And this is, this is not easy stuff. These are not easy truths. These are terrible uh, and, and difficult things for us to wrap our hearts and our minds around. But we have to do it to get to where we are going. You see, if God is for us, then everything else applies. But what if God is not for you? What if he is against you? And now immediately you have this visceral reaction. You're like, no, 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 God can't be against anyone. I mean, that doesn't make any sense because God is for us. And yet, as we get into the scriptures, we see some 
disturbing, some difficult teachings. We see this, for instance, the city of Nineveh, it says, there are countless casualties, heaps of bodies, so many bodies that people stumble over them. And all of this because Nineveh, the beautiful and faithless city, mistress of deadly charms, enticed the nations with her beauty. She taught them all her magic, enchanting people everywhere. I am against you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. He's against the city of Nineveh. He's against the people who have done these faithless things. He speaks of the city of Babylon. See, I am against you, you arrogant people, says the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies. Your day of reckoning has arrived, the day when I will punish you. O land of arrogance, you will stumble and fall, and no one will raise you up, for I will light a fire in the cities of Babylon that will burn up everything around them. He speaks of Egypt. I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you great monster lurking in the streams of the Nile. For you have said the Nile River is mine. I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and drag you out on the land. I will leave you stranded in the wilderness to die. You will lie unburied on the open ground. And now you might say, yeah, but look, these are all pagan cities, hostile to God's people, right? You named all the the chief uh, cities that, that Israel had to fight against for all of those years. But look, this is to Israel in Leviticus. I will turn against you. He's speaking to his people. I will break your proud spirit. If even then you remain hostile toward me, I will inflict disaster on you. And if you fail to learn the lesson and continue your hostility toward me, then I myself will be hostile toward you. I will personally, I mean, this is getting rough stuff. He's saying, I will personally strike you with calamity. If in spite of all of this, you still remain hostile toward me, then I will give full vent to my hostility. I myself will punish you. This is rough because now after this text is when things really get bad. This was not the bad part. Things are about to get horrible if you continue to read the context. See, God tells us over and over that any who refuse to join him are against him. And if you are against him, then he is against you. You've decided to stay on that side of the battle lines, then you have decided to war against the creator of the universe, the Lord of heaven's armies. I, I kind of fell into a rabbit hole this week. I was uh, reading through a, one of the books of the Old Testament. It's the book of Amos. It's a short book. It's like eight or nine chapters. And as I read through it, I was just struck with how contemporary so many of the warnings were. Like it felt like it was applying more directly to us. And so I started paraphrasing it. I started rewriting it as if it were written to us today. So I'm, I'm, can, I, can I share a couple of my rabbit hole wanderings with you? Let me just read a couple of, uh, of these here. It said, uh, and again, I just updated the language a bit for more modern terms. Everything I'm about to read is actually in the book of Amos in a, in a slightly different form, but it's all there. This message was given to the prophet in the land of the free. The Lord's voice will roar from Atlanta and thunder from Colorado. I will be heard from L.A. to New York. This is what the Lord says. The Americans have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They beat down my children, so I will destroy their military security. They care not about the refugees. 
They broke their treaties. They showed no mercy in conflicts. They grabbed land and resources and killed unborn children. They, fought, they failed to treat their enemies with respect. The so-called Christians of America have rejected my sacred word and refused to listen to me. They believe the same lies their forefathers did. They refuse to use their resources to help the poor. They shuffle the homeless out of sight and out of mind. They don't respect women and they use them for sexual gratification, even at their church services. They take advantage of the needy to make their lives more comfortable. Though I called them my own, they don't want to hear from my prophets and teachers. My people have forgotten how to do right, so I will not let you win your battles. Nations of the world, take your seats and look upon the chaos and oppression among my people. Go ahead and lounge in your expensive homes and on your expensive couches and rest all comfy on your cushy beds. They will be but rags and bits of broken chairs about you soon enough. Your beautiful homes and all the right neighborhoods and all of your financial security will be destroyed. Go ahead and show off your generosity. Go ahead and keep supporting your local churches. Keep up with your daily devotions. Keep making a show of asking God to help you. Then go and boast about how holy and righteous you are. Isn't that what you love to do? There will come a day when there is no more opportunity for forgiveness and no atonement for your rebellion can be made. I'm telling you, I'm really just updating the language here. Like this stuff really is in the book of Amos and it's disturbing. All right, a couple more here for you. E even when the water starts to dry up, that was straight out of the New York Times. Even when your water starts to dry up and there isn't enough for your crops, even when there are hungry people in your streets, still you fight against me and won't join my side. I allowed a virus among you, I'm not making this up, disrupted your whole lives, but still you fight against me and won't join my side. I sent pests to eat your crops. I struck your farms to kill your chickens and drive up the price of your eggs. All right, I might have embellished that one just a touch, but it is in there. He did strike their crops. Nothing about eggs, but it's in there. But still you fight against me and you won't join my side. Some of your cities are falling apart because of pollution, poison, and violence, but still you fight against me and you won't join my side. The Lord, the Lord of God, of heaven's armies, wants everyone in that forsaken land to hear me. There are two sides of this war, God's side and there's the other side. And if you, if you refuse to join him on his side, then God must stand against you. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, back into our text, he asks this rhetorical question. He says, if God is for us, and if he is, then we have nothing to fear. If God is for us, if we have aligned ourselves with the, 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 the God, the, the host of heaven's armies, then who can ever be against us? He is the host of heaven. He has all of the, the armies of the heavenly realm at his disposal. He has infinite power and wisdom and resources. And so if God is for us, then who can be against us? And so we hear this. And then Paul, he continues on and he says, who can ever be against us? And I look at this and I, and I, and I got to tell you, my first thought is I'm like, this is really good news. And then my second thought almost as fast is I want to be like the, the kid in the back of the classroom and be like, um... Professor, Professor Paul, uh, I could come up with a few enemies who are against us. 
Like, it's actually, it doesn't even take me that much to think about them. I think one of your, your colleagues called it the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I think there's a whole list of enemies, actually, that I have to fight against. I, I think sin that indwells in me. I think you actually just talked about that a chapter earlier. I have to battle against my own sinful tendencies, my own flesh. I have to, well, what about, and, and, and what about all the principalities and powers elsewhere in the scriptures? You, you, you even talk about this in another letter, that there are these principalities and powers, there's evil forces that are in fact lined up against me. So how is it that, that you can turn around and dare ask? I mean, there is the unbelieving world and there is the persecuting world and there is death, which is still our enemy, which every single one of us is going to ultimately taste. There is the one who holds the power of death, the enemy, the devil. He's still aligned against us. In fact, Paul is about to list this whole tremendous grouping of horrific forces that are aligned against God's people. So it's not that he doesn't recognize it. It's not that he doesn't know it. Of course he does. So we have to start to wrap our hearts around what's really going on. I think Paul, he's telling us here that all of the power of hell and earth can be called upon to assault us, to open fire against us. They can muster all of the troops, but they can never ultimately win. God has already begun his counter assault against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and against shame and against sickness, and against pain, and against insecurity, and death. And he has is, he is already begun the battle against them. In fact, decisively so, he has declared victory. And though every single wicked power and principality can and will be marshaled against us, none of them will ultimately prevail. Paul makes this so abundantly clear, and he starts asking these questions to make us start to think through the implications of this. And so he goes on and he says, listen, won't he also give us everything else? And I'm like, this is such a beautiful promise. He's going to give us everything else, and it's filled with all this optimism, but it's tinged with reality. Because I don't think he's given me everything else that I need. There's still so much that I lack. There's still so much that I want. And so how can you tell me that he's going to give us everything else? He doesn't give us everything else. I mean, who here has enough time? He could give me some more time. That would be nice. Everyone here feels like they have enough cash on hand. How about time? Do you have enough time? Well, how about, say, security? How about time? We lack friends, we lack time, we lack wisdom, we lack time. Almost everyone I talk to lacks time. You know we all have 24 hours in a day, that's the way it was set up, there's nothing around that. That's it. And yet we all feel like we lack it. We need more of God's presence. We want more of his love. We want more from our relationships. We want the people closest to us to care more deeply. We want to better understand our spouses and we want them 
to better understand us. We want more respect from our kids. We need more recognition from our employers. We need more confidence that the future isn't going to wreck me. We need more health in our bodies because everything's starting to break down and decay. And so how is he? See, Paul doesn't simply ask this rhetorical question. He's not naive. He knows that there is a tension here in this life right now. And so what he does Rather than simply make an argument and say, listen, the promises of heaven are going to be yours and every tear is eventually going to be wiped away. Instead, what he does is he gives us the basis of the whole of everything that he has been saying here, something that is irrefutable so that we can just blast right through all of the uncertainty and doubt that starts to creep in. He says, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all. What else do you need to know about God than that? We know Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, he went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, and so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Listen, this word here, betray, we're doing a quick little word study here. Betray and hand him over, same exact word in the original languages in the Greek language. This idea that he that, that it was Judas who gave Jesus up to the priests. Then the priests, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin, they made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. They gave him up to Pilate. Same exact word that was used of Judas. And then, of course, Pilate has Jesus in his power, he thinks. And so to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. Then he turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Same exact word. He turned him over. He gave Jesus over to the Roman centurions to be crucified. Same word shows up. This is the giving over of Jesus. In the 1870s, there was this man, Octavius Winslow. And uh, Octavius is a, you know, I think he's a, a bit of a, you know, a, a handsome uh, gentleman. And so this is Octavius in 1878. And what struck me when I saw him was that he looked a lot like Doc Emmett Brown. And I'm not saying I believe the whole time travel thing. I'm just saying... If, in fact, this is a thing, Doc may have been the one who really said this. But let's stick with the fact that Octavius said it. He said, who delivered up Jesus to die? Who gave Jesus up? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the priests for envy. But the Father for love. But the Father for love. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these. If God is for us, who can ever be against us since he did not spare even his own son but gave him up? Same word. This is the same exact word that was used for, for Judas and for the priests and for the Romans. This is God giving him up in Jesus willingly laying down his life. God becomes the enemy of Jesus for this moment. It says that the sin that was put on, he became sin for us and we, so that we might be the righteousness of God. He, he, he turned his wrath and anger at his beloved. 
so that the rest of his beloved could be guaranteed that God isn't stingy. You can blast through your doubts with this great promise. You can, you can hold on to this. You can take this one to the bank, so to speak. This is how God has forever proven. Listen, you may not understand everything that you're going through, and you may not understand the decisions that God makes and why he withholds and why he blesses and all of that kind of stuff. You may not understand it, but I can assure you of this. God gave up his son for you. How could you imagine that he would withhold anything else after that kind of a sacrifice? We're gonna take a few moments here and we're gonna reflect on this with the elements of communion. And so if you have your communion elements, then go ahead and um, grab them. This will be a little bit of a, a guided reflection time. And so just hold on to the element there. You don't have to take it yet. I'll let you know and we'll take it all together. But first, go ahead and take the little cracker, the little wafer, and just take it in your hand and hold on to it for just a moment. So the bread of communion is the representation of the body of Christ, and we've spoken of this many times. But it also reminds us of how God provided for his people in the wilderness. They were starving, they were hungry, there was no food in the wilderness, and God gave them manna, or bread, from heaven. Every single day he gave them bread from heaven. In fact, they couldn't hold it. To, they couldn't store it up. They couldn't get tomorrow's bread unless it was the Sabbath. They couldn't stockpile it for days on end. They couldn't put it in jars. If they did, it would rot and it would go bad. And isn't it a curious thing? The least efficient way of gathering up the bread. God could have made it so that they could have gathered it once a month and given them all sorts of free and leisure time. They could have had security that they weren't going to go hungry in the future because God had stockpiled manna for them. And God refused to do that. He knew that our hearts drift too quickly away from him. Right? This is what Jesus prayed. We know that. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, our daily bread. Many of us have heard this since we were a child. Give us this day our daily bread. Listen, there are things that we lack because God knows that if he were to give you everything and if we were to, he were to remove every struggle and trial, we would, we would quickly abandon him. We would move away from him. We wouldn't seek him as our daily bread. Our need is supposed to drive us into the one thing that we genuinely need, which is his presence. So as you hold this, I invite you, if you're comfortable, you can close your eyes. Take some time and just reflect on any of the things that you feel like you need from God. You feel like you want from him, the things that maybe you constantly pray about or you're frustrated by or whatever it might be. Just hold them up before God right now and just surrender it to his wisdom. He knows how and when to give our daily bread. He's not holding out because he lacks the resources. He's not holding out because he doesn't love you. Father, we just surrender. 
We take our insecurities, the fears that keep us awake at night, and we just say, you know better. You know what we need. Thank him for not giving us all that our hearts clamor after. It would quickly draw us away from him and we would end up losing the one thing that we truly need, which is God himself. We thank you, Father, for not saying yes to everything we want, everything we think we need, but for working in our lives in such a powerful way, marked by your crazy generosity, your willingness to do hard things for a greater good. And now let's ask that he would give us more of what we need, his daily presence with us. Lord, this is what we want, our daily bread, to know you, to walk with you, to love you, to trust you. Let's take the bread together. What can we say about the cup? The symbol of the blood that Jesus gave for us. Our blood was required. We were at war against him, enemies in our hearts, against our creator, refusing to trust him, refusing to follow him. And Jesus is the required payment for our refusal to get on God's side. He bore that wrath, that separation, that shame, and his blood was poured out so that ours would not need to be. As we hold this cup, I think it's important for us to think through how regularly we think of God as stingy. Here, the symbol of his great sacrifice in our hand, and we can't stop thinking about how stingy he is how he's not giving us the good gifts, how he's not giving us what we need and what we want. And he's standing before you and he's saying, I've given you everything. I have given you the only thing that ultimately will matter. Why do we fear the future? God has it in his hands. Why do we worry about what's gonna happen with our kids? You know, there's someone who loves your kids more than you do. We fret about fractured marriages. And he promises us the marriage supper of the Lamb where we, we will be reunited with him and with God's people for all of time. And we, we, we get feeling uh, lonely in this world and there is a savior who sticks closer than a brother. And this is the cup that made it all possible, the sacrifice of Jesus for us. So if you're comfortable, you want to close your eyes and reflect for just a moment. Somewhere in our souls, Maybe you're believing that God doesn't have your best interest at heart. As you hold this cup, you think about his sacrifice, just yield that to him. You know, somewhere in your prayers and in your thoughts are feelings about how untrustworthy or unloving God has been to you. Maybe you have bitterness when God doesn't protect those that you love. Or maybe you have fear that God isn't going to come through for you when you need him. Maybe you have sadness over lost loves or frustration over lost opportunities. Maybe you have anger toward God. 
for making your past and your present just so hard. All of these things, this is confusing, difficult, rebellious, hurt feelings and thoughts. And I'm just asking right now, just surrender them to the God who gave his son for you. The God who said, I love you more than you know. I've made you my beloved, the cost of my beloved. I'm not saying that God's going to give us everything you want or demand. I'm saying that this cup shows us once and for all, definitively proves to us beyond shadow of a doubt that God, he's not stingy. He's extravagantly and recklessly generous. And though mysteries will abound in this life, we're reminded day by day, week by week, of his great love for us. Let's take the cup together. Father, we're asking that here now, together in this place, you would be untangling these knots that are often in our souls. Lord, we believe one thing, we put our minds to something, we say it, and yet so often we don't feel it. We don't experience it. Lord, we say we believe, we say we trust, and yet, Father, do we? And in those quiet moments in our soul and the anxious moments, Lord, we just forget your goodness to us. And Lord, right here, this text, this promise, this scripture has been driven deep into our souls so that we might always remember, we might always know. You are recklessly loving, sacrificially so, and will always be if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.